Okay, invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And I could give you, that'll be our scripture reading for today. Uh, I'll give you a couple of other references. You could turn there if you would like. Uh, but the same exact stories that we're going to be uh, discussing today in today's teaching are um, also found in Mark chapter 2, the end of Mark chapter 2, verses 23. Uh, and, in, and it goes into verse, or excuse me, chapter 3, and then Luke 6. But today, our, our main focus of our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. Of course, we're in our series on the law of God, a study of the Ten Commandments in the Christian Christian's life. And we have uh, spent... Um, we did a couple of weeks kind of introducing some of the background, some of the, the groundwork that was necessary in order to discuss the, uh, the Ten Commandments in the Christian life. Uh, then we, we looked at one commandment each uh, for the first three, and now we are on week three of our fourth commandment because this one seems to have a lot of questions surrounding it. And so this will be the last one, I promise. We're moving on. Um, but we're going to be discussing uh, the how, a little bit more of the how of the fourth commandment which is um, to remember the Sabbath or to observe the Sabbath day as found in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, but today we're going to look at, for our scripture reading, a passage of scripture where Jesus has some Sabbath controversies. And so I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 as I will read verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we come to your word, and we hear the story recorded for us of the life of Jesus and the Sabbath controversies that he frequently encountered. And we pray that we would learn here. Um, that you would teach us that the very words of Jesus would penetrate into our hearts and into our minds and that we would bear much fruit for you in obedience to you. And we ask that you would do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So today, I'm going to be looking at this in a couple of parts. This is a little bit free form. I may jump around. I have a lot of material. My wife told me last week, you talked way too fast. You were trying to cover too much material at once. And so I'm going maybe selective. I may just be cutting things out today so that I don't have the same sort of thing happen. 
But my plan is, is that there's basically four parts to the message today. Okay, four parts to the message, and each of them about 45 minutes long or so. So four parts. Um, hopefully less than that. Um, the first part will be an exposition of the passage that we just read. And then we're going to transition to uh, an exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 22, what it has to say about um, how we observe the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. And then uh, there will be a third part that will look at chapter 22, or I would say what comes before chapter 22, and then I'll just wrap up with some conclusions. So let me begin, though, with looking at this text that we, we, just, uh, we just read together. And if you can imagine, this is one bad Sabbath day for Jesus. You ever have a bad Sunday, by the way? Maybe you had one this morning on the way here. Um, you know, like your breakfast gets burnt. You, you spilled toothpaste on your shirt or something and needed to change. No? Does this just happen in my house? Um, or kids fighting or somebody cuts you off, or you slip on the ice, or something like that, and uh, you're sitting here going, this is, like, this is a bad day. This is supposed to be the Lord's day, and it ends up being a bad day. Um, here is recorded for us here, although um, Luke seems to suggest that the two stories that we just read happened on a different Sabbath. Uh, Matthew and Mark seem to suggest that these are both happen on the same Sabbath, these two controversies. So we're going to look at two controversies that we read here, and the first one I'm going to call plucking heads of grain, Okay. Verse 1 of Matthew 12, here's the setting. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck, pluck heads of grain and to eat. Luke adds the detail that they were rubbing them with their hands, you know, to get the, like, the chaff off of it, and then were chewing on the grain. I kind of imagine this would be like eating, um, you know, like steel-cut oatmeal, <laughs> but uncooked. I don't know, imagine it could have been really pleasant, which probably speaks to, you know, how hungry they were as they were traveling, and they often traveled by foot. So that's the setting of this, and they're walking through a field, they're plucking heads of grain, which is in itself not an unlawful thing to do. What becomes unlawful is that it happens, as it says in verse 1, on the Sabbath. Now, where they are is in close enough proximity that the religious leaders of the day the Pharisees could see what Jesus and his disciples were doing. And so notice the opponent's accusation in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Don't you love religious spies? Now, Jesus offers a rebuttal here in, in many parts, and, and I've, I've listed them as like three rebuttals and then two counterpoints. I don't know why I typed that. It maybe it could have been five points here. But I wanted to walk through Jesus' response to their accusation here uh, with a couple of rebuttals here. Notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Now, I like how he does this because... Um, the Pharisees, along with the scribes, were the religious experts of the day. So to ask a question, have you not read? Of course they've read. Of course they've read. So Jesus wants to go to the scriptures, and he says, I want, I want to point something out in the scriptures that you would know and recognize. And he gives an example of King David when he was hungry and those who were with him. Verse 4, how he entered the house of God... And in Mark's gospel, it tells us, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, how he went into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. You may remember this story from 1 Samuel, where David is on the run, his little band of warriors are on the run, and he comes into the, the tabernacle, and he takes the bread of the presence, which is uh, placed before the Lord in the holy place, and it is only for the, the priests to eat after they switch it out, which they are to do once a week, which, which uh, although it doesn't say that in the text in 1 Samuel, uh, it, they seem to be in the process of switching the bread out, which 
uh, I believe in Leviticus, it says that needs to take place on the Sabbath day. So the high priests are working, they're making bread, and they're swapping it out on the Sabbath day. And so David is coming in, he's on the run, and he comes in with his band of people on the Sabbath day, and he comes into, and the language here suggests that David actually comes into the holy place, which is only where the priests are to go. Okay, not the holy of holies, which is only the high priest could go into one day of year, but into the holy place where the, uh, the lampstand is, the altar of incense, and the table with this bread on it. David enters into that, and he eats this bread. And Jesus points it out. That was not lawful. That was not lawful for David to do. Only the high priests were allowed to eat it. So it's interesting that the very scripture on which the Pharisees profess their reliance on does not seem to give any condemnation to David or his men in doing this act. David, it is assumed here, could break the law, could break the Sabbath because he was David. And the implication that Jesus is giving here is not to suggest to the religious leaders, oh, did you not notice that there's a little loophole in the Sabbath laws? I don't think it's that as much as what he is saying is that uh, David had the authority to overrule that. He's not condemned in any way in the scripture for doing this. And he is in effect saying, and one greater than David is here. Which has seemed to be implied here. All through this chapter, you see this mentioned a couple of times. We'll see another one in verse 6, but notice the end of the chapter. Verse 41, he uses the, uh, the sign of Jonah. And in verse 41 of Matthew 12, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at, uh, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's referring to himself. That's an explicit statement. Or in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the, east, uh, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, referring to himself. So you see this argument that is starting to develop here, and that I think he's just implying here, that something greater than David is here. So that's the first rebuttal. Let's look at the second rebuttal. The second rebuttal happens verses 5 and 6. Or have you not read, again, pointing to the scriptures that they would know, claim to know real well, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. Interesting. That Jesus says that the priests are actually working and laboring on the Sabbath and that they need to do that. And yet, even though they are working on the Sabbath, he, Jesus is saying they, they're profaning the Sabbath, but their work is a work of necessity. People used to ask me, like, you know, what do you do? You consider Sunday a work day? And I used to say, no, no, because it's the Lord's day, and I rest on it. Um, and uh, I used to say that, but I would always be so tired, you know, at the end of the Lord's day, like I did work. And so now I just kind of say, after read, like reading this passage, I'm like, you know, the high priests were working on the Sabbath. So I, yeah, I am working. You know, I labor at preaching and teaching. Steve would say, this is the only day I work during the week. <laughs> Jokes with me all the time. You only work one day a week. <laughs> But it is a day of work. It is labor. Um, it is working because that's what the priests are doing. And again, the point of his argument here is very interesting. It's not so much that he's pointing to a precedent or a loophole in the law um, as it is. It's a question of authority. If serving and working and laboring on the Sabbath is legal work in this sense, how much more would that be true? And he's talking about earthly priests in the 
tabernacle or temple, how much more would that be true of Jesus and his work? Which is why I think you get this next verse in verse 6. It's unique to Matthew. He says these words, but I tell you something greater than the temple is here. It's a reference to himself. It's a claim to his authority. In Jesus and his ministry, we have the work of God that's transcending the temple ritual of the Old Testament. The temple has been the focus of God's presence among his people. Now, now it's Jesus. Which the implication here, again, it's not so much that it's a rejection of the temple. It's not a rejection of the ceremonial laws and the ceremonial rites that the priests would be doing. Because, of course, those are all pointing forward to something as a types and shadow of the one that is to come. But what Jesus is saying here is that the presence, his presence as Messiah is here. Now look at his third rebuttal, verse 7. Actually, sorry. Um, yeah, this is, this is verse 7 of Matthew 12. And then the next, the next one is the counterpoint will actually be Mark 27, 2.27. You can look there. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. This is a, a citation from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus has already mentioned this one other time in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 9, 13. And he's quoting here from the Old Testament. He's saying there actually is a, a priority of things in God's order. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, uh, several weeks ago when we began this series, I, I gave you a, a litany of verses from all over the New Testament and the Old Testament that seem to clearly mark out a distinction between God's moral law and the ceremonial laws. Remember Isaiah 1 where the Lord is like, I don't want to have anything to do with your sacrifices. If you're ignoring justice, you've got blood on your hands. You, you think that you could just come and do these sacrifices and then just live any old way that you want. That's not how it works. He, he desires mercy and not sacrifice. So again, Jesus is using this verse, and it's not, again, not a rebuttal entirely of the ceremonial observance, but to establish God's priorities. His disciples were, uh, were guiltless, not that they had not infringed upon these regulations of the Sabbath that had been accumulated, but that they were guiltless because they were following Jesus on his own authority. Now for this, let me turn now to the, his second counterpoint, which we're going to jump from Matthew here. We're going to jump to Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Because if you put all of these stories in parallel, and, and I can show you this too, I, I, I printed this out. You put all these stories in parallel, there's things that Mark includes that are not in the others, and, uh, and Matthew includes that that are not in the others. Mark includes this, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's the only time that occurs in the New Testament. Because this, we know this is the exact same, all three accounts are telling the exact same, uh, describing the exact same incident. But Mark includes this detail here. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus was saying, don't get these backwards. The Pharisees had turned something that was to serve us into something that we were to be enslaved to. The Sabbath is a gift from the Lord to rest, to delight in him, to worship him. And 
whether, whatever their motives, the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders at the time, made entire lists and categories of all of the things that could and could not be done. A couple weeks ago, I joked about my 47-page bullet-pointed document, and, and somebody came up to me and was like, uh, when you'd mentioned, and I said this as a joke, and when, um, when I mentioned it, somebody came up to me afterwards and go, when you said it, I was kind of excited because I actually kind of want to know the do's and don'ts. And I was like, that's what Judaism was. They actually had 39 categories, 39 categories of things that could not be done. Category 16 of the 39 was reaping, and that's the violation that the disciples were doing at this point. But Jesus is saying, you're not to be enslaved to the Sabbath. It's not that man was made in order to serve the Sabbath. Man was, um, sa the Sabbath was made to serve man. Jesus corrects the, the Pharisees' faulty notion here. That's one counterpoint in, in Mark's gospel. Now let's go back to verse 8 of Matthew 12, where Jesus is functionally saying the same thing here in verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, as the Son of Man, gets to decide how the Sabbath is to be observed. He gets to decide to sweep away all of the man-made ceremonial things that were added to it, like barnacles on a ship that the Pharisees did. Jesus gets to establish how the Sabbath is going to be observed. And he is essentially here saying that he has the right to interpret the Sabbath and he does so in a way that effectually undermines the Pharisees of that day. So that's Sabbath controversy number one. Sabbath controversy number one. And we'll call that um, plucking heads of grain. Here's the second one. And this one I'm calling pulling sheep from pits. Okay. Verses 9 and 10. Here's, again, begins with the setting. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. So if you could picture this, and again, I think that Luke tells us it was on a different Sabbath, but here Matthew seems to suggest that this is happening on the same day. And he went on from there, and he's you know, going from his grain fields, and now he's going into the synagogues, and maybe the Pharisees are spying him out still this entire time. And then verse 10, it says, And a man was there with a withered hand. Okay, now let me make a note right here that the Jews did have exceptions on when the Sabbath could be violated. And one of those exceptions was in a matter of life and death. The Pharisees allowed for violations if a life was endangered. I don't think that that was always the case. I'll explain why in a moment. But they did have that exception. So saving someone's life took priority over Sabbath observance. However, a sickness or an infirmity or a deformity was not life-threatening. And so in this case, that would not apply. Matter of fact, in Luke 13, verse 14, we have a great quote, a statement uh, from the ruler of the synagogue who was indignant because Jesus had performed a healing on the Sabbath. He says, there are six days, this is Luke 13, 14. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. So a withered hand didn't qualify. In other words, Jesus could have waited a day unless Jesus really wanted to like get him here. Jesus seems to be deliberately proving a point by, by healing on the Sabbath, and I think to expose their hardened hearts. Now, Mark and Luke add a detail about the deviousness of the Pharisees. Let me read to you from those in Luke 6, 7. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that he, they might find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew their hearts, Verse 8 of Luke 6. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood here. 
And here at this point, then the opponents have this interrogation that begins, verse 10, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And again, they asked this so that they might accuse him. And Jesus gives this rebuttal, and, and in a way, it's kind of like a, a parable here, verses 11 and 12. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? I, I didn't put those slides in order. I'll show you the videos later, but maybe you've seen these little clips on social media or whatever of the little boy pulling, and I think this may be in Israel or so, and you know, there's a sheep caught in like a trench, and he pulls the sheep out, and the, the sheep bounces away and starts running and running and then jumps and then right back into it again, you know. Um, there's actually several of these around. There's no shortage of, of sheep doing dumb things, you know, which is why I think God's people are equated to sheep, maybe. So sheep in the ditch. So, so apparently there, there's no shortage of videos on this in social media. There was no shortage of this happening in Jesus' day. He's using a, a story that they would be very well aware of. Now, notice that Jesus is not offering an Old Testament citation. He's not now going to, have you not read? There's no direct statement of his authority like in the other ones, like say something greater than David is here or something greater than the temple is here. Instead, he doesn't declare his authority. He exercises it. So he gives this hypothetical of the sheep, and it's to point out the absolute hypocrisy here of them. In verse 12, he says, how, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, you would do it for a sheep, but you wouldn't do it for a fellow image bearer of God. Because you're respected for your entire system of rules that everybody comes to you and seeks your authority to tell them what you could do and not do or what can or cannot be done. And so Jesus then exercises his authority here. By the way, how does Jesus feel about such um, hypocritical religiosity? Uh, using religious authority to impose man-made rules on others. This you have to go and look at Mark 3. He looked around them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. Now you've grown up with, you know, flannel graph Jesus or Bible storybook Jesus, and he's always kind and always nice, and he never gets angry or never upset or anything. He gets angry. And he's not just angered, he's like angered and grieved at the same time. So back to Matthew, verse 13. And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Now to this, their hard heartedness that Jesus already was recognizing and already pointing out goes to another level. In Luke's gospel, it says, and they were, they, the Pharisees, they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Or in here in Matthew, it says, but the Pharisees went out. Mark says that they immediately held counsel with the Herodians and conspired against him how to destroy him. Okay. So these were not just debates over the law of things that maybe they missed. These were direct declarations that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. These were direct confrontations against them. Because if it's just a matter of debating, you know, didn't you read there's a little loophole here? No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. Because this is what he's claiming here is I have the authority to override your, all of your man-made rules. That's why they want him destroyed. That's why they want him killed. So those are two principles I think that Jesus gives us. We could look at many more, but here are two great principles to think of what Jesus has to teach about the Sabbath. One, the first is plucking heads of grain, and two is pulling sheep from pits. We're going to come back to these in a moment. 
Now let me turn to the exposition of, of our confessional statement. We've looked at this over the last couple of, uh, of weeks. And uh, so let me skip through here a little bit. We looked at these last week. Paragraph 7 of chapter 22 is more specific. This is the chapter on religious worship and on the Sabbath day. And chapter 7, or excuse me, paragraph 7 and paragraph 8 uh, give more explanation here of, of how they would see this Sabbath taking place. Okay, So paragraph 7, it says, And as it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment, be set apart for the worship of God. Okay, remember, this is part of the, the moral law of God, the natural law of God. These are part of the Ten Commandments. They're written by his finger on stone. This is not part of the ceremonial law. It's a law of nature that it be set aside, a proportion of time set aside for the worship of God. So by his word, in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding on all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in Sabbath seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. Okay, So we're saying under the old covenant, it was the seventh day or the last day of the week. But, on, but in the new covenant, notice it says here, and from the resurrection of Christ has changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, of, uh, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The basis for this we saw a couple of weeks ago we looked at all of the passages that speak about on the Lord's Day or on the first day of the week. And when you're gathered as a church on the first day of the week and you set aside some money for these or then uh, when they were um, gathering together to take uh, to share a fellowship meal on the, the first day of the week. Or John, when he says, and I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. So we saw all of that. It goes from the seventh day under the old covenant to the first day under the new covenant. Okay, that's, that's paragraph seven. We saw that last week, but I wanted to see paragraph eight. It gets to some of their, their explanations of how, and this is where we get a lot of the questions related to this. Paragraph eight says, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. And by this, they're meaning the Christian Sabbath, or the, the, the Lord's day is kept holy unto the Lord when men after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, you might notice that uh, the last two there, in you know, except in the duties of necessity and mercy, correspond really well with what we just looked at in Jesus's teaching, right? The duties of necessity perhaps can be put together with our plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, right? It's out of necessity. Or acts of mercy, pulling a sheep from a pit, perhaps. But let's look at some of these other ones, and these are what kind of raise a, a lot of questions here. Okay, so the due preparing of our hearts and ordering our common affairs beforehand or aforehand. So one of the suggestions they have here is when it comes to Sunday, when it comes to the Lord's Day, that this day is set aside for worship and for rest, then plan on it. Prepare for it. Prepare for it on, even on Saturday night. So no, no staying up super late at night or um, now, again, I'm not telling you this. I'm telling you this from like my perspective. What I tend to do is I tend to, my, me and my family, we don't, we don't go out. We don't go out to like movies or things like that on Saturday night because we're just trying to get to prepare beforehand to get ready for what the day is about. It's about rest and for worship. Kind of like the, in the Jewish reckoning, the Sabbath begins at sundown. And this kind of goes back to Genesis 1 in the creation of the world. And there was evening and there was morning, day one, day two, day three, etc. And so with that in mind, that's just kind of how we plan and prepare for that. 
So they say prepare beforehand, and then it's a holy rest from our own works, words, thoughts about their worldly employment. Okay, what worldly employment, what does this mean? Worldly here, by the way, doesn't mean sinful. It means common or every day. Like what would be a typical common thing that you would do most of the days of the week? Then what you are given on the Sabbath day is a break from that. On the Lord's day is a break from that. Now, what about those who are forced to work on Sundays, like nurses or doctors or police or fire or utilities workers, right? Because somebody's working right now in order to, for us to have the lights on here. I think that, of course, those kinds of exceptions should be made or it can be made. My wife has to work on the Lord's Day because people get injured on the Lord's day. They need to go to the hospital. Criminals don't take a break on the Lord's day. Don't you wish they would? Maybe a couple of other days too. So worldly employments, but you know, you understand that remember what Jesus did with the priests who were profaning the temple. They worked that day and it's necessary that they work. They were prescribed to work that day. So I think a lot of us understand that. Okay, we understand we take a break from our worldly employments. And if you do work on the Lord's day, then you make up for that. You rest on another time as you can and you can fit it in. But what about this worldly recreations? This is a big one. This is probably the one that I, even uh, me reading it, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Like I get stopping for work. Um, but I can't do like my recreations. What is the meaning behind this? Well, let me give you just as a reminder, when this document was written, it was written in the middle of the 17th century. The, the first version of it was in 1644. Well, why does that matter? Well, it might be helpful to know a little bit of the story that's going, uh, that's playing in the background here. And how the, the, Protestant Reformation was working in England. First, it begins with Henry VIII, who can't get a male heir on the throne. So he wants to divorce his wife so he can find a wife who will get him an heir on the throne. But the Catholic Church says no way. And so with some influence from Protestants, he's uh, said, you know, you can uh, create your own church. This is my, this is my church. You can, cre you can create your own church, really, if you kind of. And so he, he does. He gives a de declaration. He makes himself head over the church. And he's able to get a divorce. Or... But then his successor is, uh, so he doesn't really care, he, but he's influenced by Protestants. His successor is a Protestant, but then um, he's very young. He dies at the age of 15. And then that son's successor is Queen Mary who's referred to as Bloody Mary, staunchly Catholic. Why is she Bloody Mary? Because she went and slaughtered a bunch of Protestant ministers. Well, she dies, and then Queen Elizabeth I comes, and she's kind of like a middle way. And then her successor is King James I, and this is King James of King James Bible fame. He's the one who authorizes a new translation of the Bible into English. He and his son both um, had a very rocky relationship with a lot of the Puritan ministers at this time. They didn't quite see to eye to eye on some things. And so James intentionally provoking, um, provoking the ministers of the churches. Now, keep in mind that the churches were kind of a part of the state. And so if the king issues an order, they, could, they had to follow this kind of thing. And so he issues an order called a declaration of sports where he says, I'm going to have this read in the churches. All of the ministers need to read this. And I'm issuing a declaration that fun should be had and recreation should be had after the church services are over. Both James and Charles uh, issued this. It's called the declaration of sports or the book of sports. And we have for us, here's a description of the types of things that they said, we're encouraging you to do after church gets out. This is what you're to do. Leaping, dancing, running, or entering any mastery for a goal or prize, 
Maypole, you know, remember the Maypole thing? Where you can, uh, or Church Ale. <laughs> All of you got to be Anglican now. Well, and, and what, this, what that meant was is that they, they were, these were like church-endorsed from the, from the government down endorsements of participation in all sorts of, of things that usually had some uh, bad associations with them. I mean, the church ale was that the church was to bring, provide ale for everybody to come and then just drink and then would lead to a whole bunch of drunkenness. And so the parish clergy were required to read this declaration, which meant that they, they were basically forced to give their approval to this against their conscience. That's not how they wanted to practice the Lord's Day. So they were incensed by this. And they, did you know that in the long history of the English monarchy, there was an 11-year period where there was no monarchy? You remember? It's, it's hap that happens right at the, be the beginning of that is happening right at this time when the second declaration of this is listed. And this is one of the triggering things that starts this uh, revolution here where there's no monarchy for about, for about a decade. They were incensed at this kind of thing. And I was trying to think of like a parallel, like a modern day parallel. So forgive me if it's not exactly right, but let's just imagine this. Like Joe, Joe Biden issues a decree for all evangelical churches that I'm supposed to read that encourages all the people to, um, to drink beer and then to go watch the NBA Sunday night game where he is promoting the LGBTQ night. Okay, uh, maybe that's a clumsy illustration. That's about right, that's right. So, so that's basically in effect what this is doing. So when you hear the word, when you see the word recreations here, that's what's behind this. This is what they were protesting. And they were saying, this goes against our conscience and it goes against the purpose of the day. You're making the day just like any other day when this day is to be special. Now it leads to all sorts of questions. Well, then what can we do on that day? I, I'm, again, I'm not going to give you the 47 page document that gives you all the do's and don'ts of what should and should not be done on the day. But I'll tell you, it is a day for rest and it is a day for worship. They say things in here like the all day and the whole time. And again, the backdrop of that is you're, you're, you're forcing and you're imposing upon that day um, a destruction of it. So that's the second part. Let me get to the third part of the passage, or the third part of this morning. And that is this. What I've just read to you is from chapter 22 of our confession. Okay? Chapter 22 of our confession. And you may not know this, but 22 comes after 21. How many knew this? Okay. <laughs> Chapter 22 comes after chapter 21. Now, why is that important? Well, chapters 21 through 32 of the confession are getting basically to uh, the, the Christian life stuff, all sorts of Christian life things. So there's a, a lot of doctrine at the beginning, and then here it gets, uh, gets to more of Christian life stuff. And in chapter 21, it is titled, Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. Okay, now, now you're thinking of this, this issue with James and his son Charles and their declaration of sports and book of sports. Perhaps is in the background here. Also, a lot of Catholic teaching. Because again, these guys were fiercely Protestant and they did not want to have what the, they saw what the Catholic Church was doing was adding burdens onto people that were not a part of scripture, were not part of religious worship. But let me read to you paragraph one, and this is beautiful. I think it's phenomenal. Because it's talking first about the liberty of the Christian, okay? It's not on the screen, that's the next one. Don't, don't read that, don't read ahead. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from guilt of sin, 
the, condemn, the condemning wrath of God. Freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the condemning wrath of God, freedom from the severity and curse of the law. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, delivered from their bondage to Satan, delivered from their dominion of sin, and from the evil afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. He says, this is what we're free to do. All of which were common to believers under the law for the substance of them, which meaning this was true to an extent for the, those believers, the saints of old under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. That's amazing. I mean, just read and meditate on that, that paragraph. This is all of the blessings that come to you if you are in Christ. The liberty that you have as a Christian. You could go through each one of those and meditate on those for days. That's what paragraph one is about. The, the liberty that comes to the Christian. Now, in paragraph two, he gets to our conscience. And that's what's on the screen. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience, means not according to, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of, of an implicit faith an absolute and a blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. I know that sounds like a lot, but he's saying you are not under the bondage of man-made rules or obligations. This is, in direct, this is a direct assault on the, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church that was dominating Europe at that time as, of the Reformation. And this is in the the, the post-Reformation era, and it is saying, we worship by what is according to the word and what is revealed into the word. We do not have um, all sorts of other things added on to God's commands in our, in our worship. So there's no, there's no penance. There's no rosaries. There's, no, there's none of these kinds of things. I think it's helpful when we're thinking about paragraph, excuse me, chapter 22 on the Sabbath and the, the religious worship and the Sabbath day to keep in mind paragraph 2 of chapter 21. So now the conclusion. What about my 47-page document of cans and can'ts, do's and don'ts? I'm not going to give you one. Jesus <laughs> because Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, honor, remember what his accusations were about those, uh, the hard-hearted of his day, and he cites from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. What, what are, how are they honoring him with their lips? They were going through the motions. They wanted the checklist and they said, I'll just check this off. Give me the do's and don'ts. And it didn't come from heartfelt obedience. Remember the lawyer in Luke chapter 10? Stood up to test Jesus and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The two tables of the law. And Jesus goes, all right, that's Sounds good. You've answered correctly. Do this and live. And then the, the, the lawyer answers, but desiring to justify himself, says, and who is my neighbor? Give, give me the checklist. What's the minimum requirements? 
And then I'll feel good that I've marked them off and I've done them. And you'll be satisfied. In the new covenant, Jesus is not going to give you that, I don't want to call this the easy way out. He wants obedience from the heart. And we get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit guides us. He forms our consciences by his word. And we apply them to ourselves. We have his commands. We have the 10 words. And we have the summary of that. The two tables of the law that the the lawyer knew. And then from there, we go by what, what the Holy Spirit does in us. But I'll give you this, this basic guideline. And I've heard this before, and I, I think that this is a good one. So when it comes to the Lord's Day, I would just say, ask yourself. In everything that we've looked at in the last three weeks, ask yourself, is the activity appropriate for the purpose of the day? That's it. Is your activity appropriate for the purpose of the day? Remember, the Lord's day is a gift. It belongs to him. That's remember the possessive, the Lord's day, but it's a gift to us. It's to serve us. We were not created to serve it. It was created to serve us. And we're not slaves we're not slaves to the Lord's day, but we do have to remember its purpose to rest from our common work and to worship in the Lord. Amen. Is this activity appropriate for the purpose of the day? Let's stand for closing. Prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it teach us and instruct us. And God, we thank you for what we read about the freedoms that we have in Christ under the new covenant and the blessings that come to us. Freedom from from sin, from death, the liberty from this present evil world, the liberty from our bondage to Satan, the freedom that we have to come before you with childlike faith, to approach your throne with boldness. We thank you for all of those freedoms that were purchased by your son, Jesus, for us. And now we come to celebrate the meal that Jesus gave us as a celebration of that freedom. That is through his broken body and his shed blood that we are brought into union with him through faith. And so, God, we come before this table thanking you for the work of Jesus We thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for this meal that represents this gospel to us as a means of grace to us, that it will nourish us with the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in resting and receiving him. And so we come before you with gratitude, and it is in Christ's mighty name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen.